Hi there, I'm Jonathan Coleman, and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's episode, we're chatting to Lou Rosenfeld of Rosenfeld Media. I was delighted to have Lou as my first guest on the podcast. I've been following his career for almost two decades since we were both in Ann Arbor, Michigan, back in the early 2000s. We chatted with Lou about his process for curating design and research conferences, the genesis of information architecture and design ops, and Lou's long-running quest to humanize technology. If you enjoy my conversation with Lou, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing to Inside Intercom now on the podcast player of your choice. Okay, Lou, I'm so excited to have you here as a guest on Inside Intercom. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, John. Lou, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am someone who started as a librarian and then became an information architect and then became a UX person and then became a publisher and then became a conference producer and podcaster. And in in there, uh, I wrote some books. And all of it has to do with helping people have better experiences typically with information. So nowadays, my main role is at Rosenfeld Media, a company I started, gosh, um, it's already been like 14 years. Uh, we started off as a company that published books for UX people, and uh, we continue to do that. And we've since expanded into the conference production business. Besides virtual conferences, we're, we've just launched our third in-person conference, And we also provide training. And I just kind of, I like making things out of information. And so whether you're doing books or conferences or teaching or training or any of the bunch of fun things I've been able to be involved in, it all involves taking information as essentially a design material and making it into things that people can hopefully benefit from. I love that. And uh, making things out of information has been a big part of your work over the last several decades, you were a co-author of what we call the Polar Bear Book or Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. And you also set up Argus Associates. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, gosh. So I, I mentioned that I started off as a librarian. And it's only partially true. When I went to um, what was then a library school at the University of Michigan and got my master's degree, which I got back in uh, 1990, a lot of us were really being preached to by people among the faculty about the information revolution, which was nigh and uh, upon us. And, you know, that that sounded really exciting, but I don't know if anybody really exactly knew what it meant for librarians. And uh, my feeling was, I didn't know if I wanted to be a librarian, but I wanted to bring librarianship to new settings, like this big information world that we were constructing out of digital stuff. And uh, also, you know, not only have like the broader world begin to appreciate what librarians could do and do, but also kind of bring it back to the librarians who were feeling kind of on the defensive and libraries were being underfunded or defunded and people kind of, you know, didn't have a lot of respect for the profession of librarianship. Well, why not show librarians that if they were willing to kind of free themselves from the traditional setting of the library, as it was defined back then, that there was a whole exciting future where they would be valued. And so that's how information architecture for the World Wide Web sort of came to be, is uh, Peter Morville, who's also a grad of that program, had been my student. We felt like, all right, let's take the principles of librarianship and then some other areas and, and put them together 
in ways that would be accessible to people who were struggling to organize information in the era of the web. And uh, I'd started Argus Associates back in 93, 92, 91 actually, as a company initially to teach people how to use the internet, how to find information on the internet. And then it kind of, uh, as it became a real business, we kind of flipped that around to show people how to organize information, to aid the companies that were either agencies or, or companies that had their own web presences and help them do a better job of making their content easier to manage and easier to, to find and access. So that's, that's what Argus did. We were a very successful company for a very short time in the, in the late 90s. And after we shut down, and I could get into the dirt there if you really want, I was a solo consultant for a better part of a decade independent and uh, did some more writing, got involved in a lot of volunteer efforts around the Information Architecture Institute and the Information Architecture Summit, which I co-founded both of, and something called the User Experience Network, which didn't quite ever succeed, but I see people still trying to do it today. And uh, in the mid-2000s, I decided we needed a UX-focused, UX-dedicated publishing house, so I started Roads and Film Media. And uh, I think that gets us pretty much up to where we are today. One of the things you've talked about a bit here is this idea of helping people find information and then also from the other side, structuring that information so that it can be found. When we were talking before the show, you mentioned something that really stuck with me, just this idea that librarians have a moral duty to make ideas accessible. Is that some sort of driving force behind all of your different sorts of work? There used to be this saying you'd hear, especially in the early days of the internet when we weren't even sure if it was going to be commercialized or not. And that saying was, information wants to be free. And I always thought that was kind of funny and like, you know, that we would interrogate information and ask it its perspective. But actually, my take on that is that information wants to be used. And it's dangerous, right? Information is a dangerous thing. And it's also a wonderful thing. And <laughs> so where am I going here? Well, we are in an era where information is going to be out there. It's going to be more sophisticated than before. It's going to be at a scale greater than ever before. I look at how my kids grow up being able to just access uh, so much information via Google, and they take that for granted. And I remember you know, meeting Larry Page when he was still a grad student. So it's just changing so quickly, and, and we're just driven by this like intense explosion of information. So my professors back in the day were correct. What do you do in that context? You can't not have information, but I don't see how you stuff it all back in into uh, Pandora's box. Given that, what are we gonna do to make information better, to make it easier to understand, to make it more helpful, and maybe more importantly, to make ourselves better at understanding it, at creating it, at figuring out what's worth keeping and what's not, and how to just understand the, the, the processes that get us to create and publish information as individuals, not just as companies, publishers, larger entities. So that, you know, that's really driven by the principles of librarianship. If you look at what the American Library Association's uh, philosophy is, and that really kind of percolates throughout the field. It's really about using information for good. 
So about that, uh, you'd mentioned earlier that good UX humanizes technology. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you? Yeah, technology is just tools, right? It's just, it, maybe it doesn't feel that way because whenever we interact with the technology, we're interacting with this huge, complex array of tools that are all working in concert. It's a dehumanizing feeling. And it's dehumanizing because technology, in many cases, creates both time and distance between us as humans. So we are connected, and yet we are feeling lonelier and more disconnected than we did before technology was foisted upon us as the way it has in the last 25 years. And it just creates this uh, kind of tenuous ability for people to be in contact despite the fact that they are further apart in time and space than ever before. And in that context, we have to figure out ways to bring people back together. And we have to kind of use technology to make that happen. And I think that maybe the primary goal of, of people in the world of user experience isn't to make things, things usable and delightful I think it's to actually close the gaps between people through their experiences, which are typically with the technology. So that's kind of what we have to do. We are creating worlds and people live in those worlds. How do we create a sense of community? How do we reconstruct or construct a social compact between people and the worlds we create? We do it by closing distances that our technologies have just opened. And I think that's really what UX, if it's not for today, that's hopefully what it's going to be for tomorrow. Now, tell us how you apply those ideas at Rosenfeld Media. How do you bring these to life? Well, you know, so when we do our work, it, it, you know, it's funny. I, here, I'm seen as a UX person, uh, an expert. And when I talk to who I see as the quote real experts, I always feel a little embarrassed because I don't, I don't even build websites really anymore. And they're doing amazing apps and, and service designers are doing these incredibly complex experiences. And I feel a little embarrassed to even comment on it. That said, what I do work on are experiences with books, with conferences, and with communities. And all of those things, I try to make sure that as a company, we practice what we preach. So we use user research and not only user research, but we try to incorporate a diverse set of perspectives into everything we create. And you know, this is actually an interesting thing. This, the, these two pillars, user research which we've kind of been talking about for years, and diversity of perspective, which we haven't been. That's something that's really emerged more recently. They're both so important. And I just want to make a point about the last one, about the diversity of perspectives. We've always had as our logo the elephant. And I've always loved the fable of the blind men and the elephant and how they a group of blind men encounter an elephant and one touches the trunk and says, oh, I found a snake. And another touches the elephant's leg and says, no, it's a tree and so on and so forth until they have a conversation and synthesize their findings and arrive at the true insight of that it's an elephant. That's fundamental to what we do. So to make this more concrete, 
we just decided for various reasons to launch a new conference. It's called Advancing Research. It's going to happen in mm. New York and for the end of March, early April of 2020. What do we do? We didn't just say, we're going to do a conference. Let's go find a bunch of speakers that we like, people whose names we might recognize. Instead, we started with a survey that got about 720 responses and had a huge number wow. of hours put into analyzing those responses about what people wanted and what would benefit them, especially from a conference experience. So we were using you know, what we know and what we preach as UX people first to help us understand what the demand might be. Then we did a second thing. We put out a call for proposals. And the call for proposals was designed in a way to be very open-ended, not to tell people what we wanted them to speak about, but to give them a broad enough sweep, broad enough scope that they could tell us what they wanted to speak about and give us some information about formats that like to speak in and so forth. So that's in effect the, the supply. So first we went out and we researched the demand. Now we're, we've got about 230 responses in just about a week. We just closed the CFP and we've got a picture of the supply. Now we're analyzing the talks, not just individually, but collectively. What is the zeitgeist of all those ideas that have come in? And now our job is to put them together. And that is using user research to create something new. Yeah, so that's fascinating me because you have a really different approach for putting together these events that a lot of other conference organizers don't have. This seems like it was influenced by your IA and your UX experience. How did, how did you get to this point of curating your shows this way? Well, it's funny because I personally, as, a, as an author and as a presenter at conferences, sometimes it's very personal. I've had personally some kind of bad experiences where I didn't really get much support, even felt set up to fail. And I didn't want my authors or my presenters to ever feel that way. I've always wanted them to have ex extensive support, whether they're an author having the support of a group of subject matter experts and a professional editor, or for our conferences where we say, don't show up with a talk, show up with an idea. We will work with you over months iteratively to develop the idea, and then we'll have you work with a speaker coach. Because, you know, I've, sh I've shown up and given talks where I, you know, thought about it for a day or two and I paid the price and, and has, so has the audience. So, I mean, that's part of it. It's this personal desire to not put people in positions to fail, but it's also, yeah, I mean, it's just like conferences, books, whatever we do, they're products. Mm -hmm. Why would we do it any other way? Why would we just go ahead and pull something out of thin air? Oh, th these, this sounds like a great bunch of speakers or my buddies, let's get them to be the conference program and hopefully people will like it. That doesn't really advance anything. That doesn't really get at what people really care about. It doesn't really push the field forward. And in fact, I'm giving you a longer answer than you might have wanted, John, but <laughs> I see creating conference programs or an editorial agenda for a line of books as definition exercises. They are definitional. I don't like definitions of UX or IA or whatever it is that are like two sentences long. I like definitions that say, here's the program of a conference that's basically a snapshot of what the practice is of, of the moment. It's the zeitgeist of now. That is definitional. 
and working with different people to come up with those programs and people who represent different perspectives makes it even more robust as a definitional exercise. I love that. You know, when you talk about the zeitgeist of now, everything you're talking about goes back to that thought about humanizing technology. So quickly, with that curation model then, do you find that there's some feature, some key attribute that you look for in speakers or in the writers you work with when you're putting together these things? So they have to understand the collaborative nature of developing information problems, which is what a talk is, which is what a, a book is, and so forth. And so, for example, if an author comes to me and says, I want to publish a book with Rosenfeld Media, here's the manuscript. I will say, ah, thank you, but that's not how we do things. Mm. I want your idea. I want to see if the idea is, has legs. I want to put it out there. I want to test it out. I want to get people's perspectives. And if it's it's something I feel strongly about, let's join forces and let's go ahead and develop that idea together into a proposal and then into a book and so on. And that's not only important because if we share, if we, you know, join forces, we're going to develop the content more effectively. And, you know, I think there's things that we know as publishers about the audience and the market that the authors don't know and vice versa. And that means it's also going to help us collectively market a book much better. Right. Same is true with the conference presentation. Someone just has a canned talk. We tell them, you know, based on our, our valuations in the past, canned is panned. <laughs> I love that. Canned talk is always obviously the canned talk. And the talk that's been created custom or at least moderate, a modified custom for a particular conference and to be part of a particular program or a portion of a program it just sings. It, and, and in fact, the talks sing in unison. They, they just work well together because they were designed together. And we find sometimes speakers come to us and, you know, especially if they're more bigger names, which does happen sometimes and they get grouchy because we keep bugging them. We say, we're having meetings. We're going to go over your talk ideas with your other speakers, your colleagues, you're in a cohort. Let's go through it. And let's do this a few times over a number of months. And sometimes they get you know, I'm, I have my talk. It's ready to go. Stop bothering me. <laughs> and often those same people come to us after the conference and say, you know what? My talk is so much better now. And I'm so happy with how it was received. I really feel like it changed things. The process, which is a UX process, really helped me. And, and uh, often they leave the process with, with relationships through uh, working with other speakers because we have them work together. They like have these great uh, friendships that uh, are, are really beneficial to them for the rest of their careers. That's fascinating. It's uh, it's like information curation as orchestration. Oh, I like that. <laughs> it gives us a lot of insight into how you put these events together. So speaking of which, what's the next conference on your agenda? Well, so we are doing design the Design Ops Summit in oof, less than three weeks. Oh, wow. October 23rd to 25th. 2019 here in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Very excited. I live in Brooklyn, so it's nice to have a conference in my backyard. Uh, and this is the third edition. So what can people expect from this? Well, it's really exciting. So design ops, I never heard the term until March 2017. Dave Maloof dropped it on me. It just mm. blew my head. Up. And then by November of that year, we had our first conference on it, sold out. Did another one last year, sold out. Those first two conferences were very much about 
what is design ups? What's the scope of it? What, what, what's the basic bones of the practice? This year, uh, based on user research, I can tell you that people really want to go beyond the questions and move more toward the answers. They want the concrete, practical takeaways, the tools, the techniques, case studies. And so we're really, you know, selecting talks. So we've selected talks and we're really pushing the presenters to really focus on those concrete things that people can learn right away and take away back to the office the following week. So give us a, a quick overview of design ops as a discipline and why is it important for design teams to know about? Well, design ops, design operations, it's not something that's brand new, but we've reached a critical tipping point in the last few years where, you know, we finally got a seat at the table. Organizations are finally saying, yeah, 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 we, we get it. Just design thinking, yeah, yeah, let's spend some money on this. And then... There's like this sort of next step to take from, as John Colco would put, from design thinking to design doing that oversimplifies things quite a bit. But if you're going to actually do design, especially in a large organization with lots of design challenges and lots of complexity, you have to have operations in place to support those designers and the researchers as well. So those processes, those operations have to cover not only the tools and the design systems, pattern libraries and guidelines that designers and researchers and writers need to do the work, but it goes beyond that. It goes to challenges of actually uh, building your team, uh, both recruiting and onboarding and keeping them growing while they're inside your organization. It also goes to the topic of where the expertise would be located in the organization, how centralized, how decentralized, how does it work with uh, the methodologies for creating products. You, know, you might have to be thinking about how you, your, your organization is part of a, an agile process. It's also almost to the level of principles. Design operations people are sometimes finding themselves in the position to think about the principles that drive the design organization that actually glue the processes and the people together. And it's not that these things weren't being done. It's not that different leaders and managers may have already been doing it. They have been, but it's actually taking all this stuff and professionalizing it so that you can really amplify what a design organization can accomplish. I love this. It's, uh, it's true designing the design org stuff. Absolutely. Well, one of my co-curators for the Design Ops Summit is, is Kristen Skinner, co-authored that wonderful book, mm -hmm. Org Design for Design Orgs, with Peter Merholtz. And yep. I get to work with Ivy Covert and, and, and really, the, in some respects, the godfather of, of Design Ops, uh, Dave Maloof. Those, uh, those three plus I are the, uh, are the curators of the Design Ops Summit. It's a, it's a total pleasure and honor to work with them. So uh, before we wrap up, Lou, um, is there a, a business or design leader who you aspire to or follow closely for inspiration? So he's not my favorite person. Uh, <laughs> I love this already. Where are we going? But he's dead, so I, I can consider <laughs> what I want. You know, Walt Disney, mm. you know, we, we understand his genius in, in storytelling and animation and appropriation to some degree but my limited understanding is that while he built quite a an amazing organization and, and an amazing you know record of, of cultural achievement by the late 50s it wasn't until then that 
he had some kind of vision for a, a broader, if you will, ecosystem of Disney that included not just the cartoons and the films and the characters and the whole animation process, but the theme parks and the product lines. And I'm not sure if he was thinking about the cruises then, but if you think of what Disney is now, it is really this unbelievable integration of products and services at both the most broad level that I'm sure makes a service designer's head spin. And at the most micro level, uh, I remember being on a Disney cruise and, and noticing the, um, the mouse ear trim on the lampshade in the stateroom. And uh, so at every level, and I'm struggling, uh, and I wish I could you know, reanimate Mr. Disney, so to speak, and ask him, how do you, how did you tie all these things together? What kind of map did you draw? I've seen some of his maps, and I still can't quite see. Like My brain isn't big enough to grasp how he connected all these things, both big and small, dynamic and stable. It's amazing, and that it changed over time. So he must have had a roadmap in there, too. I'm just trying to figure out how to tie together books and communities and conferences and a few other things. And it makes my head spin. So yeah, it's off the wall. It sounds like you're doing something similar with Rosenfeld Media and linking together all of these different kinds of information as, as products, creating this sort of shared universe. You know, I, it, it's, I realized that just in the last few weeks, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And that it's actually in one way or another, it's the product of a good 25 years of thinking and, and work mostly unconscious, didn't realize I was working on this, but now I'm kind of, it's all I want to do. So uh, it's, it's a great time to be alive because we can, you know, people, you don't just have to be Disney to work on these kinds of ideas. So thank goodness. <laughs> Still so much opportunity out there. So where can people keep up with you and your work and all these events, books, and communities? Well, rosenfeldmedia.com is uh, our website that has all of our books. We have a whole bunch coming out in 2020. Excited to report. We also link to our conferences, advancingresearchconference.com, signupsummit.com, and enterpriseexperience.net. We also provide the uh, information on our training there. And we have three communities that are free to join on enterprise experience, advancing research, and design operations, all link to from there. I tweet occasionally at Lewis Rosenfeld and I'm known to post a thing or two in LinkedIn and Medium. Brilliant. We will add links to all of these on our blog post. Uh, Lou, thank you so much again for joining us, telling us all about your vision for connected information and humanizing technology. John, thanks for the opportunity. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.